You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. It used to be that an HIV diagnosis was a death sentence. Today, of course, many people who are HIV positive are living long, healthy, and productive lives. But that doesn't mean it's easy. Stigma and prejudice continue to shape the lives of those who are diagnosed with HIV, and many people, especially those in otherwise marginalized communities, face an extra layer of discrimination and inequality. Celeste Watkins-Hayes is a professor of sociology and African-American studies at Northwestern University, and she's author of a new book titled Remaking a Life, How Women Living with HIV-AIDS Confront Inequality. She joins us now in studio to talk about the hurdles that still stand in front of many people who are HIV-positive. Celeste, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me on, Stephen. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you here. Uh, You interviewed over 200 women for this book. But you say that there's one quote that sticks with you. Dawn Stevens, who is 58 and was diagnosed with HIV in 1985, told you, quote, if it weren't for HIV, I'd probably be dead. What did she mean by that? Yes, what a complicated statement. Mm -hmm. How can an illness responsible for the deaths of over 30 million people around the world be credited for helping to save a life. And what I learned as I talked to Dawn is what she was explaining is that the resources, the support that she needed to be able to move from what I call dying from to living with to thriving despite a whole host of traumas came to her when she was plugged into a very important community, and that is the HIV community. So what she was saying is, if it weren't for the HIV community, I'd probably be dead. This vast network of people and institutions and policies designed in the early 1980s and 90s that is one of the most effective social safety nets of our time in helping people to cope with the illness, but also to cope with the various what I call injuries of inequality that increased their risk for HIV transmission. Yeah. So talk about why you decided to undertake this kind of project and write about HIV and the barriers that people who have been diagnosed with it still face. Well, I'm a scholar of social inequality. And when I was a graduate student, I met a woman who was living with HIV. And I became intrigued by how her networks and community was very different from many of the women who were dealing with the same issues, who were dealing with housing insecurity and economic insecurity and a variety of other health issues, who were grappling with the legacy of sexual trauma. And I got the idea back then that I was watching a community in action that was really critical and important. Years later, I started to interview women in Chicago who were living with HIV, and this would expand into a national study where I would talk to both women living with HIV, but also activists and advocates involved in the fight. Because I was interested in documenting both the challenges and the hurdles experienced by people living with HIV, the stigma and the struggle, but I also wanted to document a way in which we had moved the needle on a social problem. 
we often talk about the challenges that we're facing, but we don't often talk about solutions and the ways in which there have been examples of services and communities who have come together to address significant issues like the HIV epidemic. It is still a crisis. We still face many challenges, but there have been undoubtable successes in our fight about around HIV. Just the movement of it from a death sentence to a manageable chronic illness that's not just a, an important medical achievement. That's also a significant social achievement because it was activism that pushed that achievement forward to push the science, to find medications, but also to build an infrastructure of support for people living with HIV. So, so talk about what the barriers that people who are diagnosed with HIV face today and how they might be different than in the mid-1980s, late-1980s, when I can remember that's the time when I was a teenager and becoming an adult, that this was the scariest possible thing out there in terms of a public health issue. And the idea that anyone who got it was likely to die just maybe within a few years, it is so different today, as you point out. But what are the barriers that still exist? Absolutely. So we now have really wonderful biomedical tools available. We have PrEP pre-exposure prophylaxis, which will which can prevent um, HIV transmission. And we also know that people with undetectable viral loads who are on treatment consistently and adherent to treatment can't sexually transmit the virus. So we are at a critical point in terms of the science and the medications. But the challenge we're facing now is access, making sure that the people who need those tools are getting access to it. We know that in communities in the South, we know that communities of color all over the country. We know that economically disenfranchised communities are struggling to get access to these resources that we know are effective. So we've got to think about how do we expand the tent? How do we make sure that people are getting access to care in ways that can save their lives? And and getting access to care looks different uh, among different communities. That's just true because this is a society that is really layered in terms of access and opportunity. Talk about how different that looks for people who are female. Talk about how different that looks for people who are African-American or Latino. These, these differences that exist in society play out in the HIV context very similarly, right? Absolutely. So we often hear the term social... Uh, inequities in health or social determinants of health. And I actually use the words, the phrase injuries of inequality, because I think that it puts at the center and it forces us to reckon with the legacy of historic and contemporary discrimination and the ways in which it impacts our health and the ways in which it impacts our access to health care. So one of the things that we know about people living with HIV, particularly women and particularly people of color, are the ways in which they're grappling with multiple injuries of inequality, not just an HIV diagnosis or a risk for HIV diagnosis. They're dealing with poverty often. They're dealing with 
uh, housing instability. They're dealing with lack of access to health care centers that are affirming in terms of their race, their class, their gender, their gender identity. So when people don't have access or when they have access but don't feel welcomed, don't feel as though they can raise those questions and concerns, they're more likely to pull back. And then it becomes difficult for us to make sure that they get access to the biomedical tools that we know are very effective. So we've got to think about HIV holistically as not just a social, not just a medical issue, but a social issue as well that is really indicative of the disparate access to resources that people experience. Mm. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Celeste Watkins-Hayes. She's a professor of sociology and African-American studies at Northwestern University, and she's the author of a new book titled Remaking a Life, How Women Living with HIV-AIDS Confront Inequality. We're talking about the barriers that women and other folks uh, who are diagnosed with HIV still face in 2019 very different from what we saw in the early and mid-1980s when HIV was a death sentence, an almost certain death sentence, but still uh, a an example of the ways that inequality plays out in our society. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. We especially want to hear from you if you are HIV positive or if you're living with AIDS or if you're living with somebody who is. What does life with the disease look like for you? Are you able to still live a healthy, active, and productive life? Do you face barriers that you think are about your HIV status or about other means of inequality in America? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Also, give us a call and tell us if you think We've forgotten about HIV and AIDS in 2019. Is it not uh, discussed enough? Are we not thinking enough about this disease and the ways in which it may reinforce systems of inequality in our society? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. I want to go to uh, Latasha Booth, who is in East Point. She's someone we've asked to call in during this segment and share her experience. Latasha Welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. How are you this morning? I'm good. How are you? Good. Uh, let's talk about your experience uh, with HIV and uh, and life over the last few decades. Uh, well, uh, I've been HIV positive now for 19 years. I'm working up on my 20th year anniversary, I would say. Um, I would also say that HIV probably is what saved my life. Um, in the aspect of figuring out who I was, what I wanted to do. When I first found out my status, life for me kind of stopped, and I really didn't want to continue on with life. But it was because of HIV and me finding out my status that allowed me to meet some of the most influential people in my life. Uh, Not only that, but it also allowed me to travel uh, to some amazing places and meet some more amazing people who are still a part of my life today. Um, life for me has been great. Um, I don't complain 
It's nothing that I can't complain about. Mm-hmm. Um, these last 20 years, I've seen my share of of stigma. I've seen my share of death. I've seen my share of life. Um, and for every person, it's different. But I am very proud of where things are with HIV now. I remember being on the front lines over a decade ago pushing for things like PrEP and pushing for things like home HIV testing kits and pushing for rapid testing and to see these things come to fruition has been a great joy. Um, And to know that the more people who are in care who get their HIV status to an undetectable level, we can really stop this virus Mm. from continuing to spread. If we continue to educate, though, I think that part of uh, the HIV education in the community, I wouldn't say it's dwindled down. I would say it's kind of watered down. Like, I don't think the population that um, are most at risk now um, that they're still the focus. Mm. I, I truly believe that 13 at 24 age range is very pertinent um, to get to at an at, at an earlier stage of life to prevent them from becoming infected with this disease because it can stop. Right, uh, Latasha. I want to ask you about when you were first diagnosed, the kinds of things that that and you encountered in terms of stigma and how they might be different today, two two decades later. It's a really different world uh, that we live in now and in terms of HIV and what people know about it and and perhaps how they feel. I wonder from your perspective how that has changed. Quite honestly, on a personal level, I have never really... I wouldn't say be a victim, or, but I would say uh, been on the receiving end of mm. stigma. Mm. I would say that um, in the last 19, 20 years, I can only recall one instance that I felt like my disease was a hindrance to me. And that was when I was, uh, I had a, a cyst on the back of my neck and I had to go to the emergency room. And the nurse in the emergency room told other people in the emergency room, and they never gave me a gown, you know, and she didn't want to treat me. Mm. Um, And at that time, I wasn't aware of the laws or what my rights were as an HIV-positive individual. But to date, um, I would say the only stigma that I've really received lately um, is that I've had, you know, I talk to young people a lot. I work with young people all the time, between that age range of 13 to 24. And I I point out their risk when I know that there are the risks of, their, of getting infected with the disease. And the only stigma I've had is that I've had a parent tell me that they did not want me to disclose my HIV status to their kid. Mm. And I couldn't understand why, if I'm trying to prevent him from being in the same spot that I'm in, and I know that he's participating in risky behaviors, why wouldn't you want me to talk to your son to save his life? Sure, sure. Uh, Celeste, I want to get you to react to what we've heard from Latasha about her experience. 
Yes, it is. Um, first of all, thank you for sharing your story because it is so important for people out there to hear the experiences of people living with HIV firsthand. And there's so many important points that I, I want to kind of call up. First of all, the notion that you can live with HIV and that movement from what I call dying from to living with to thriving despite HIV, people believing that they have a death sentence of diagnosis and moving to a place that they can they can thrive despite. And the importance of the community in helping and supporting people along that journey the larger community, but also the HIV community that provides social support, helps people get access to health care, helps people um, get to places of economic stability. But perhaps most importantly, in some ways, as we listen to Miss Booth's, Booth's story, is the notion of providing that on-ramp to political and civic engagement teaching people how to use their stories to be impactful in the lives of others, whether it's informing policy and pushing for the things that she and other activists were pushing for in terms of access to treatment and home testing and prep and a variety of resources, but also educating others and the community about the epidemic and the illness. That's what's going to end the epidemic. Um, the ability for people to speak their truth and to speak truth to power about what's necessary for us to address this. Because again, we have the biomedical tools, we have the pills, but what we really need is the community support and the community infrastructure to support people who are who are on this journey. And I also want to point out the irony of um, of this story. The idea, when I think about Dawn telling me, if it weren't for the HIV community, I'd probably be dead. And in the story that we just heard just now, the question has to be raised of why does it take an HIV diagnosis for people to get the support that they always needed, whether it's the economic support, the access to health care, the mental health services, all of those things that the HIV community has pulled together very effectively in terms of wraparound services. Why does it take a, an HIV diagnosis to do that? And it's really an indictment on our larger social safety nets and the ways in which they're tattered. And we often don't assist people in need until the fire is raging. Mm. That's when we install the fire extinguisher. And we've got to think about that and what that tells us about our larger strategies for confronting economic, racial, political inequality. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Celeste Watkins-Hayes, and we will hear from more from uh, you listeners uh, about this issue, stigma and HIV in 2019. Dawn in Ferndale, we will get to you next, as well as other callers on the line. Stay with us on Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Celeste Watkins-Hayes. She's a professor of sociology and African-American studies at Northwestern University and author of a new book titled Remaking a Life, How Women Living with HIV-AIDS Confront Inequality. 
We want to hear from you. If you are someone who is living with HIV or AIDS or living with someone who is diagnosed with that disease, what is life with the disease look like for you? Are you still able to live a healthy, active, and productive life? And do you face some of the stigma, some of the discrimination that still exists for people who live with HIV? As always, the number is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Dawn in Ferndale. Dawn. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Hi. Go ahead. Hi. Yes, I was calling in reference to living with someone with HIV. My brother is HIV positive and, well, now his T-cell counts are quite low with the medication treatment, but he's had it for 18 to 20 years. And the stigma that he's had is every time that he's went to apply for a job and he's gone for his drug test, he has to hand over a list of medications that he takes. And as soon as those people see that medication list, they know exactly what it is. Mm. And as soon as they report that back to the company, he's never hired because it's a liability issue, Um, especially in this area um, where we have a lot of heavy machinery. And the companies don't want to be liable where if he's on that machine and something should happen and blood is exposed to themselves or other employees, they don't want to deal with the liability of now every, they have to pay for everyone to go and be tested for HIV and things. So he's just not hired. And it's been that way for years and years. Hmm. And people out there who have HIV face this stigma on a daily basis when they're trying to find employment um, because they have to disclose if they're going for a drug test, they have to disclose the medications that they're on that will come up in their drug testing. In a drug test, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then somebody can make a decision based on that. Correct. And as 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 soon as the agency sees that list, they are required to notify the company that they are hired by. So, boom, there's another job opportunity lost. Don, I really appreciate you calling and giving us that example. Celeste Watkins-Hayes, I guess this is an example of the kind of silent discrimination that people face, right? Absolutely. We don't have a policy against people who are diagnosed with HIV working here, but we enforce the rules in a way that excludes them from from employment. Absolutely. And and Dawn, thank you for for sharing that story because what really it highlights is the ways in which people are still operating with antiquated notions of what HIV is and where the epidemic is. People unfortunately don't realize that if you have an undetectable viral load, you're on treatment adhering to treatment and your viral load is undetectable, that means you are untransmittable. So you are starting to hear a message more and more, and the CDC has affirmed this um, through the science that undetectable viral loads equals untransmittable. But unfortunately, too many people don't know this, and they're operating from kind of a 1980s, 1990s understanding of the epidemic. It's discriminatory, and it's extremely problematic when we think about people are living long lives and um, to normal life expectancies with HIV. So they've got to be able to economically subsist. Um, So making sure that people have access to employment and giving them those opportunities is absolutely critical. Uh, Don, I really appreciate the call 
uh, and you sharing your experience uh, with your brother there. I hope that he finds better luck and a little more compassion uh, out there in in the workplace. Let's go to Jeremy in Plymouth. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Yes, sir. How are you this morning? Good. How are you? I'm hanging in there. Thank you. I just wanted to give you guys a call and say that I have been living with the disease for the last 17 years. Mm. And here in Michigan, we have something called uh, the right to work state or the at-will employment law. Mm -hmm. And I have myself dealt with discrimination on a regular basis for the last, I would say, five years here in Michigan, uh, going through probably anywhere from 12 to 15 jobs where my own gay community or others at work that know people in the gay community that know about my status have spread rumors at my places of employment, and then those places have been turned around and without me ever having any disciplinary actions or recourse of problems there, they've turned around and then terminated me using the Adwell Employment Law. And so my big thing is here in Michigan it seems like we need to get rid of the at-will employment law Mm. to end some discrimination. We have all these anti-discrimination laws on the, on the books, but yet the at-will employment law and the right to work state seems to be able to overturn and make those null and void. And it has affected my life drastically trying to keep a job. And it makes me look pretty pretty rough to those around me uh, in my own community trying to find and keep a partner uh, and whatnot. Wow. Jeremy, I'm sorry that you're having that experience. And and I think, again, Celeste Watkins-Hayes, it, it goes to this idea that, that even though the laws are so much better than what they used to be and maybe are in the space they should be, we've got all kinds of crevices and cracks for discrimination, I guess, to crawl through to still have an impact on people's lives. Absolutely. And we also have to, you know, remind ourselves, and I want to link this to Don's story too, is that in in many workplaces, we have physical, whether it's even if you're working in a healthcare setting or a setting like Don's brother, there are protections in terms of you know, bloodborne illnesses and how we protect ourselves. Um, and we've gotten better in that realm as well in terms of wearing gloves, um, how you clean instruments, how you clean tools um, to make sure that HIV and a variety of other illnesses don't get transmitted in workplace environments where safety is an issue. But it's so interesting in terms of how we socially construct HIV. And both of your callers are getting to the root of that in terms of um, how we interpret the illness and how we have antiquated notions of people's risk, how it's transmitted, that really prove to be problematic for people's economic survival. Mm. And we should, and it's so counterproductive in the sense that people who are long-term unemployed, who are struggling to find employment, end up often finding ways, not always, but end up finding ways to survive that put them and others at subsequent risk. Mm. So whether it's um, having ending up homeless and the risk in terms of not having access to medications, your viral load shoots up, um, the ways in which you become um, uh, more likely to transmit the virus because the illness is not in check, the struggles that people um, have often leading them to exchange 
sex for all kinds of economic survival resources. It's really counterproductive to not ensure that people living with HIV have access to economically subsist. Because if they can't do it through the formal workplace, they're going to do it in other ways. They'll figure it out some other way. They're going to figure it out in other ways. And that can be dangerous. Yes. Okay. Celeste Watkins Hayes. It was really great to have you here to talk about your book, Remaking a Life, How Women Living with HIV AIDS Confront Inequality. Thanks for being here. That's going to do it for me today. Come back tomorrow for a conversation about the double-edged sword of actor, director, and producer Tyler Perry's success, plus a look at work being done by a Detroit running club for men in the city. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.